few minutes ago in the prayers of confession, we confess that we have not gladly believed the word of God. But the book of Hebrews, which we begin looking at today, begins with a, an uplifting and enticing passage for us to consider the greatness of Jesus, who is far greater even than angels, it explains to us. So, dear friends, listen and enjoy and believe the word of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke as our, to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they, that is the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, yes, thank you, Shelley. It's good to have you here. And uh, one thing I want to announce in uh, uh, to kind of off of what Shelley was saying, is that um, we are having a Carver event here on October 24th with a um, Dr. Joshua Swamidas, who wrote this book 
called The Genealogical Adam and Eve. And Joshua, I took one of his classes this year, one of those classes that they offer for pastors uh, this summer. And uh, first of all, I found his book uh, uh, very challenging and um, also very sound. Uh, What he is doing is he is raising the question, why do Christians have to reject Darwinian evolution? Um, Reject the evidence that science brings forth. And he raises the question, why can we not accept that and also accept a genealogical Adam and Eve? An Adam and Eve that God created from whom all Christians, or I'm sorry, from whom all humanity came from. So... I'm probably not doing a great job representing his view, but it is, um, uh, I, I would recommend this book to you. And on October 24th, come and hear Joshua speak and uh, have some time for some discussion. And I think, uh, I think we'll all benefit from that. So look forward to that. But for today, we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to pray. Father, I thank you for your word and thank you for what you have done through your son. Thank you for Jesus being our prophet, priest, and king. Thank you, Lord, for the truth that reminds us, that brings us back to the foundation that you have called us to stand on, the only solid foundation that is Christ Jesus himself. We thank you, and it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. There's a movie that I got to see this week from 1957. It's a Ingmar Bergman film. And uh, back in our 50th anniversary, there was uh, uh, some talk. Some people said that there were some Ingmar Bergman fans at Grace and Peace in the early days. Um, So perhaps if you are a Bergman fan or a movie buff, you might have seen the movie The Seventh Seal, which is set in uh, 14th century Europe, during the Black Plague, and it follows a knight and his sire coming back from, or I'm sorry, his, uh, 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 his companion coming back from the, uh, from the uh, Crusades. His name is Antonius Black. And returning from the Crusades, now he's struggling with his faith in God because now he's coming into a Europe that is plagued by the plague. And he's seeing, as they go through villages, they're seeing the the imminent threat of the oncoming plague. And you see Black, or Block, I'm sorry, struggling with his faith during this time. And he has this interaction with death, this uh, personified death. This man comes to him, and and it's, it's done through conversation and a chess game throughout the movie. But the scene that stands out and relates to our, our sermon today is when Antonius Black walks into a chapel and goes to the confessional. In the confessional, he's starting to really, his, his struggle with his faith is making him angry. And he goes into the confessional and he, and he sees the hooded figure in there and he goes to start confessing to him, not knowing that it is death personified that, that, that devil sitting in the, in the confessional waiting to hear his confession. And Block says this, he says, Why can't I kill God within me? Why does he live on in this painful and humiliating way, even though I curse him and want to tear him out of my heart? Why, in spite of everything, is he a baffling reality that I can't shake off? Do you hear me? 
Death says, yes, I hear you. Block says, I want knowledge, not faith, not supposition. I want knowledge. I want God to reach out. I want him to speak to me. I want him to say something. And Death says, but he remains silent. Block says, I call out to him in the dark, but no one seems to be there. Antonius Block, as he pondered the dark, violent memories of the Crusades and faced this imminent threat of the Black Plague, found himself dealing with his own reality of a faltering faith. A faltering faith in God, and he called out in the dark, but he heard no answer. Now, he couldn't shake him, but he also couldn't hear him. And this morning, we're beginning a sermon series in the book of Hebrews, and I got to say, I was, I was planning on preaching through chapter 1, but really got held up and had to change things up to just preaching through the first four verses. There's a lot there, and um, I, uh, so I don't know, maybe the sermon will be shorter, I'm not sure, but, uh, but it's believed, but the, the thing about Hebrews, it's an interesting book because there's, it's a mysterious book. Hebrews is a book that we don't know who wrote it, and yet it's in the Bible. Now, there are other books like that in the Old Testament. I mean, Ecclesiastes last, you know, if we've been going through Ecclesiastes, ultimately we don't know if that was Solomon or if it was someone else who wrote that. And the same thing here. We don't know who wrote the book. But we do know a little bit about the time. Scholars seem to be in agreement on about the time that it was written, the circumstances, and probably that the church, what the makeup of the church was. It's believed that this was a little urban church, perhaps a house church, in a larger city. Because of the language, because of the problems they were, they were dealing with in the book. If you read through the book, you'll see some of the problems they were dealing with. And they're dealing with their own reality of a faltering faith. It's clear that they survived some persecution. They survived the persecution probably, most likely, from Claudius in 49, 50 A.D., and with that in their past, and with their struggling that all they were doing in the Roman Empire, now there's fear of another persecution coming their way. This persecution was coming as a result of Nero, and a result of Nero's declining credibility with the people. His approval rating was slipping. Nero had just had to deal with a huge fire in Rome. And as you know the saying, what Nero did while Rome burned fiddled. Uh, Not sure that's actually true, but it's just a saying to say that he really didn't care. And so, as his approval rating was dropping, he had to find some way to get out of it and begin to shift the blame to the Christians. See, the Christians were the marginalized group They were the group that were known as the atheists who didn't accept the Roman gods. They were known as cannibals because they they ate uh, bread, they ate the body and blood of their Savior. So they were known as cannibals. And so they were the perfect target. And so the the oncoming persecution was something on the horizon for this church, this little church in this city. So let let me read one passage here that gives you a little bit of an idea of what was happening. 
What we know from this, if we read through it, we see in in chapter 2, verse 1, the writer is saying to be careful of drifting away. Also, of losing their confidence in chapter 4. Going back to the old ways, perhaps going back to the law, to the Jewish law. We see that in chapter 6. We see perhaps their fear is is, is causing them to want to run away and not gather together for worship. Not to be together out of fear. We see that in chapter 10, verse 25. They were lacking perseverance in their faith, chapters 11 and 12. And then they were following other teachings. They were being warned against following other teachings in chapter 13. But this is one chapter, this is one passage out of chapter 10 that might give you a better idea of where they were and where they are now at the time of this writing. The writer says, But recall the former days, this is verse 32 in chapter 10, but recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He was saying that's how they used to be. Do you remember that, Hebrews? You used to accept these things because you know, you knew you had a better possession and an abiding one. And it appears now that they don't. It appears now that that has faltered. So since they were, what, what we, uh, another thing that we know about this church is that they were most likely Hebrew converts to Christianity. And you see an extensive uh, quotes from the Old Testament throughout this book because this church knew the Old Testament very well. The Psalms were probably read and sung each week. The, uh, the Old Testament, you'll see quotes as we go through this first chapter. There's, there's plenty of quotes talking about the Lord Jesus through that time. And since they were Hebrews, one thing that they were wanting to do, one of their threats, one of the things that that their fear and their faltering faith was causing them to do was wanting to go back home, back home to Judaism, back home to what they knew. They knew the law. They knew Moses. And why would they do that? Because Judaism was more accepted in that culture. It was more mainstream. Remember, Christians were on the fringe But Judaism was more accepted in the Roman culture, and so it was safer. It was more of a refuge for them, and they wanted to get away. Another thing to keep in mind as we're going through this this book together is that this was a church of men and women, families, singles, older people, younger people, people just like us who didn't experience Jesus in their midst, the, 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 the Jesus on earth. They didn't experience that. They only knew the testimonies of those who did. Or maybe even a lot of them were even further removed than that. In many ways, there are people like you and me with struggles like you and me. Faltering faith is something we all experience. And maybe not from persecutions from without, but sometimes it's from things that happen within our very churches. 
abuses, poor leadership, neglect, whatever that may be. And we see Christians leaving the faith because of that. It's something we need to pay attention to. It's something I, as a church leader, something we all need to pay attention to when our faith is being challenged. So one more note on who wrote this book. As you know, we don't know who wrote it. What's interesting is, is I've heard a few, uh, it seems like there, 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 are, there are a few options for this. Paul, uh, I really don't believe it was Paul personally, but there are some way smarter than I who, uh, who do feel that. Um, Barnabas is another one. Uh, Aquila, Priscilla. So it could have been written by, by one of them. There, there are, are a host of others that it could have been. The great thing about having a mystery like this is it causes scholars to dig deeper. And the, dig, the, the deeper you dig into a book like this, the more you learn, the more you learn about God's word and what God was doing in this time. One more thing is that it's written as, it's, it's called the letter to the Hebrews, but it's written more as a sermon. If you notice, the, the book does not start off with a greeting. It doesn't start off with anybody saying who they are. It just starts off with verse 1, long ago at many times, and we'll start in that soon. But it's a word of exhortation, and he says this later on in chapter 30, in 13, chapter 13, 22, he talks about this word of exhortation. And a word of exhortation is another word or another phrase for a sermon. It's something that, that uh, in Antioch they were telling Paul, give us a word of exhortation, and Paul preached a sermon. This is a sermon to encourage this struggling church, this church that's dealing with a faltering faith. So imagine you're the author. Imagine you're the one who is writing to the Hebrew church. You're hearing of all the troubles. You know what's going on because you've been closely acquainted with this church all of your life and all of the life of this church. It's possible they were in Rome, Jerusalem, Alexandria, some big city. But you know the troubles. You know their faltering faith. What would be the first thing you would say to them? How would you open that letter? They're crying out for the knowledge that Antonius Block was crying out for, this knowledge to fill the void of their faltering faith. They're crying out, we want knowledge, we want something more, because this isn't working right now. Can you relate to that? So how do we begin? Well, the way our author began was this. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Notice here, the writer doesn't start off talking about persecution. He doesn't start off talking about a problem. He doesn't start off talking about the government, about Nero. He doesn't start off talking about their church. 
He starts off talking about Jesus. See, if these Hebrew Christians, if their faith was faltering, the faith that was faltering was not their faith in Moses, even though they were Hebrews. It wasn't their, their faith in Moses or faith in the law or faith in the, in the temple priests. It wasn't even their, their faith in Yahweh, probably. The faith they were losing was their faith in Jesus. And the problem is that their eyes have gotten off of Jesus. And the writer was redirecting them to the Savior, reminding them of who he is, because that was the most important thing to what he felt or he or she felt their task was in writing. It was to secure, to build that, that foundation on which they were originally standing, to build that fact, to remind them of its security. And, you know, we always kind of joke well, the answer is Jesus. If, if, if the question in the Bible is this or that, the answer is always Jesus. But that's true. Not, that, that, not in such a simplistic way, but this is really what the author is saying here. He's saying the answer to your problem right now, Hebrews, is Jesus. And Jesus is the one who is going to bring you through this. And so what he does is he gives them a better sense of who Jesus is. Think about this, just even looking back in, in the New Testament as to how the Apostle teaches, how, how the Apostle Paul, he says, all I want to know is Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. I just want to know Christ. In 1 Corinthians, he says, we preach Christ and him crucified. We preach Christ. He had the Old Testament. And from that, he was preaching Christ. Think about Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch in, in Acts 8. He's going through a passage in Isaiah. Philip comes up and starts talking to him. And it says he opened his mouth, and from that passage, from that very passage in Isaiah, he preached Christ. The writer of Hebrews is right on with the rest of the apostles. He's preaching Christ, and this is where he's starting with this troubled church. So he starts by reminding them who Christ really is, realigning their focus. And he does this to show that Jesus is Yahweh's final voice, that he's, his, that he's Yahweh's final authority, and that he is Yahweh's final sacrifice. He's prophet, priest, and king. I switched the order only just because of the way the text goes, but he's prophet, priest, and king. And he's magnifying this not only in these four verses, but it's going to go throughout the book. So first of all, he starts off with him as the final voice, the prophet. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. You see the plural aspect there, many times, many ways, many prophets. This is how God spoke in this kind of, uh, uh, fragmented is not the best word, but through many. But in these last days, in other words, from these days, from now until forever, he has spoken through one way, through his son, through his son, the prophet, the same God, Yahweh, that delivered the law through Moses and his angels and his prophets and held them up through his prophets. This same God continues to speak, but now he speaks one way through Jesus Christ, his son, the source of truth. 
Matthew 17, during the transfiguration, he, the, the, uh, God comes down and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Why? Because he is the one through whom I speak. Listen to Peter's words in Acts 321, he says, God spoke in one of Peter's sermons, he says this, God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. So you see, Peter's reaffirming this. He's saying, this is the way God spoke through the prophets, but even the prophets, even Moses said, a prophet is going to come. And you will listen to him because he is the one that God will use as the mouthpiece. He is the one through whom God will speak, will bring his truth, and will be the final word. His word is trustworthy because it's the word of God. And so when we're hearing the voice of Christ, when we're hearing the word of Christ, it's a word on which we can stand because it's God's word. It's God's truth. This is what Jesus said in his priestly prayer. He said, thy word is truth. I know for the Hebrews, I know for the church, I know for us sometimes it feels like God is silent. Like he's not there. Like you want him to just reach out. Like you want him to speak to you. But what the author of Hebrews here is saying is he has spoken. He has spoken through Christ. He has spoken through his word and he continues to do so. The word, as as the Hebrews will say later on, is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It's living and active. It continues. It continues to do its work. It says to listen to him. How how do we know that this is all true? How do we know that God has, that, that Jesus, what Jesus is doing, the word of Jesus is the word of God? Because he goes on, he says, because of what God did with Jesus. He appointed him. He's the final authority. He's Yahweh's final authority. He goes on, he says, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. John echoes this in chapter 1 when he says all things. When when John introduces Jesus in the gospel, that's the very thing he does. He says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Through him all things were made, and there was nothing that was made that was not made through him. That's the apostle John. And the writer to the Hebrews is affirming that and reinforcing that for his listeners. He's not only a prophet, he is in control of all things because he created all things. Then he goes on, even beyond his authority, even beyond being appointed as the heir of all things and the authority of all things, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. These are interesting words here. This, uh, this Greek word, apagasma, it's, it's the only time it's used in, in the New Testament. And um, uh, the, the, the next word, imprint of God's nature, is the word character. In the Greek, it's pretty much pronounced and spelled character. And it's that imprint, it's that stamp. There, it's, both of these words are reinforcing the same thing, saying that this radiance, that Jesus is, is a radiance of God's glory. It's like what the beam's relationship is to the source of the light. That is what Jesus in his relationship to the Father is. He is the radiance of God's glory. And he's an imprint of his nature. He's an exact replica of his nature is what it's saying. It's hard to put it into words that Jesus 
is this very God. But that's exactly what he's doing. He's reminding them that the Savior, the one that you are wanting to walk away from because of your fear, remember, he's the one who is one with Yahweh. Moses isn't one with Yahweh. The angels aren't one with Yahweh. Jesus is. And Jesus created all things. And all things are held together by him. It says, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That kind of ties the prophet and king part together. The word of his power, speaking that word of power, is is upholding everything. His kingship, his power is being done by by his word. Hear the words of Paul here. Colossians 1. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is important. All things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He died and he rose again. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell just like saying he's the radiance of his glory. He's the exact imprint of his nature. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In other words, the writer is saying to the Hebrews, he is in this with you. Yes, troubled times are coming. But remember the foundation on which you're standing. Remember the Jesus that you are tempted to reject here is the one who is holding all things together. He's the one who has control over all of these things. This kind of ties in nicely with coming out of of Ecclesiastes. When he said, sow your seed in your morning, in the morning, and don't withhold your hand in the evening, because you do not know what God is going to do. You don't know because God is sovereign. God is in control, and we don't know how he's going to act but he's going to act for his good, for our good and his glory. And God will do that. And Jesus is this incarnate. Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. And then after making... I'm sorry. So from there, we see that he goes on and says, after making purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. After making purification for sins, you see, he's not only the final voice of Yahweh, he's not only the final authority of Yahweh, but he's the final sacrifice of Yahweh. After making purification for his sins, there is no more sacrifice. There are no more sacrifices needed. Hebrews, what you are needing is all wrapped up in Jesus. Because without him, you have to go back to the temple sacrifices. You have to go back to a priest making these sacrifices for you. All those things were just simply shadows of the one that you already were resting in. All of those sacrifices were just pointing to the sacrifice. They were just pointing to the Savior, and you're wanting to go back. I understand you're fearful, but listen. He's what you need. 
because he's the only one who can forgive you. He's the only one who can cleanse you of this sinfulness. And he's the only one who holds all things in his hand. He has you. And he has Nero and all of Rome. And what he does is good. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a sacrifice, as a satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith. John uses the same word, propitiation. It's, it's this satisfaction for the sins, not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world, John says. Hebrews, the sacrifices of the temple you want, to retreat, you want to retreat to are just shadows. They will do you no good. Cling to Christ. Cling to Christ. Why? Because he goes on in verse 4 here to say that having become as much superior to the angels, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You're going to see something throughout Hebrews, if you haven't noticed this already, if you've ever done a study on Hebrews. You can, you can title a lot of these sermons, Christ is Better. Christ is better, because this is what's said throughout. Christ is better. He's better than the angels. Why is he talking about angels? We'll see that next week. He's, his, his covenant, the new covenant, is better than the old covenant. His blood is better than the blood of Abel. His hope is better than, than the hope that you had before. His priesthood is better than Aaron's priesthood. He gives you real rest. His rest is better. We'll see this all throughout. But understand that what he is doing in times of trouble like this is he's offering to all of us something better than what we are experiencing. The times of trouble that we're experiencing without Christ, he's offering us something better. Think about when he died. Think about when he was crucified. Think about the lowest point of his disciples, where they were scattered, feeling like they were going to now be without hope because they had no Savior because he was dead. It was at that point he said, and he told them earlier, he said, it's better that I go away because if I go away, it's going to be far better for you. Trust me on this. It will be better when I go away because I'll come to you and I'll give you myself and I'll give you my spirit. And greater works will you do than what you're doing right now, than what I've done. Greater works will you do. He's calling the Hebrews to trust in something better. That something better is here. We have a greater Savior. We have a greater foundation. We have a greater hope. And Hebrews, you used to cling to that hope, but you've fallen back a little bit. And I understand, but let me call you back. Let me call you back to the prophet that God has appointed as heir of all things. Let me call you back to the priest, that sacrifice that's once and for all. And let me call you back to the king who holds everything in his hand and will not let a hair of your head be damaged without his father knowing. All things work together for our good and for his glory because he holds these things together. Listen to what John Chrysostom says from, uh, from 4th or 5th century. Uh, he, he died early 5th century. But listen to what he says about 
Hebrews 1-2, he says, For by this he both stirs up and encourages those despairing of the future. And the expressions of old and in these last days foreshadow some other meaning. When a long time had intervened, when we were on the edge of punishment, when the gifts had failed, when there was no expectation of deliverance, when we were expecting to have less than all, it was then that we were given more. Amen. Made me think of the hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. May we turn our eyes toward Jesus and focus on him as we go from here. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the prophet, that you are the priest, you are the king. The same today, now, and forever, never changing, always steady, a rock unto which we can cling. Help us to cling to you. Turn our eyes to you, we pray. It's in Christ's name. Amen.